Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. My name is Maya Ferdman. I'm the producer of Then and Now and assistant director at the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. Our two guests this week are Professor Dalie Jimenez of UC Irvine Law School and Professor Jonathan Glader of UC Berkeley School of Law. Both Professors Glader and Jimenez are experts in higher education law and student debt policy. They co-authored the 2020 article, Student Debt is a Civil Rights Issue, the Case for Debt Relief and Higher Education Reform. They also co-founded the Student Loan Law Initiative at UC Irvine in partnership with the Student Borrower Protection Center. Professor Jimenez directs the center. Professor Jimenez's scholarly work focuses on contracts, bankruptcy, and consumer financial distress, the regulation of financial products and its intersection with consumer protection, and access to justice. She spent a year as part of the founding staff of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where she worked on debt collection, debt relief, credit reporting, and student loan issues. Professor Glader has taught education law and policy, criminal law and disability law, as well as business associations and classes on white-collar crime. He was previously a professor here at UCLA Law and spent nearly a decade as a reporter at the New York Times reporting on these very issues. Welcome, Dalier and Jonathan, to the program. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So the student debt crisis has ballooned to astronomical proportions over the past decade. Over 46 million students in the U.S. currently hold over $1.75 trillion in debt, the vast majority of which is made up of federal student loans. The federal government froze repayment on these loans at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and extended this freeze eight times since then. In the meantime, President Biden made a campaign promise to cancel at least part of said debt and is said to be making a final decision soon about whether to use his executive powers to do so. We are at what feels like an inflection point in the national conversation about student debt. But how did we get here? How did policymakers of the past lay the groundwork for this crisis? And how have those decisions impacted Black and Latinx students in particular? Dalie and Jonathan are particularly well positioned to address these questions. So let's dive right in. So your 2020 article makes the case that student debt is a civil rights and a racial justice issue. While the story starts in earnest with the passage of the Higher Education Act in 1965, you also name the nefarious role of debt in oppressing Black Americans throughout U.S. history. Why was it important for you to provide this historical context? I think in order to understand the ways that has different kinds of effects on differently situated people, you have to understand those different situations at the outset. So the need to borrow obviously, is not evenly distributed. When you use debt as a, a tool to make something accessible, not everybody needs to borrow. So if you, if you don't understand that people enter the pursuit of higher education differently situated in socioeconomic terms, then you're missing some of the ways in which debt is particularly harmful to particular groups in the population. And and in this country, we know that there's, there's a long history of, of debt being a tool um, of racial and racialized oppression. Um, and I think we, we quote in the article observations from W.E.B. Du Bois studying the 
post reconstruction era and the ways in which debt, you know, the imposition of fines that uh, there was no way um, someone could pay, fines deployed uh, essentially to indenture um, black people. So again, a tool of, of social control, a, a tool of oppression. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's not just being able to understand the different contexts that people are coming from, but to understand that the very use of debt, it was instrumentalized. Can you say just a word on and how, in addition to what you named on W.E.B. Du Bois, what are some of those ways that it was instrumentalized? Well, we know the, the long history of redlining right in this country, right in the context of home loans. So um, uh, black people would not have access to credit based on where they lived or where they were trying to buy. And much more recently, we've seen instances uh, that came to light after the, the Great Recession or in the course of the Great Recession, really, where banks were charging higher interest rates to African-American borrowers um, who were taking out home loans. Um, there was a big settlement. Uh, well, there were several large settlements by financial institutions in relation to um, the terms on which they provided credit to people. So we've seen historically these debt functioning in, in these different ways. One, to create conditions really of, of debt peonage. One, to deny access to credit entirely. Um, and one, to raise the cost of credit um, in racially disparate ways. So in, in any of those, any of those tools um, works to, to maintain or perpetuate subordination of the marginalized group. And, and I'm, I'm focusing here on, on black people, but that's not the only context, I'm sure, in which um, debt is deployed in, in disparate ways. So that's a good, that's a valuable context to have when we're talking about student debt, which is a particular kind of debt. And we'll talk about some of the distinctions between student debt and other forms of debt in a little bit. But let's, let's go into where did student debt actually come from uh, in this country. So the Higher Education Act of 1965 established two major approaches to the way that the U.S. finances higher education. It talked about tax credits and student debt. So why is this starting point significant? And what are the implications of this starting point for students of color in particular? So we're going to talk primarily about student debt, but it is important to mention that this other prong of the way that Congress um, in 1965 begins to really in earnest invest in higher education is through tax credits. That is through, um, you know, giving money back uh, to people who um, uh, spent money in higher education and who paid taxes um, or who who earned enough, uh, you know, to file a tax return, et cetera. So those credits are unequally, unevenly distributed, and they are much more likely to go to um, not the people, not the uh, Black citizens and, um, you know, other minority communities. They're much more likely to go to uh, those who earn enough money to file tax returns, that is, the relatively wealthier um, populations. So that's one way in which, um, you know, we we finance um, higher education. Um, and it's a costly way. Um, in 2011, it was $25 billion. The numbers are not always reported um, is another. So, so it's one that we often forget about. Um, but then there's uh, student debt itself. 
So I want to I want to clarify a little bit what I think you're asking, but tell me if I'm getting it getting it wrong, because um, I think you use the word groundwork in talking about the Higher Education Act, and I'm not sure that I would characterize it quite that way, um, uh, it, because really we have a, a situation of racialized socioeconomic inequality, and then we have the Higher Education Act plopped on top of that. Um, as a as a tool, or it was described as a tool, really to combat poverty, right, and to put higher education within reach um, of students uh, who previously wouldn't have a way to to pay for it, or would have to take out um, loans from banks with much more onerous terms. We could start the story earlier. We could start the story with the GI Bill, which was one kind of intervention aimed at, at service servicemen returning from World War II. We could look at the National Defense Education Act, um, and I, I want to come back to that uh, later. But the GI Bill is is distinct in that it is described as this broadly available initiative, right? It's it's described in these very idealistic terms. Um, if, if you look at the congressional record and, and see what lawmakers said. And I want to, I, I will footnote that. I know there are those who will say, we can't take what members of Congress say at face value, shouldn't be relying on these statements to draw conclusions about what the Higher Education Act or any other piece of legislation is actually intended to do. And I, I completely recognize and understand that. On the other hand, it seems to me that in this case, it's hard to identify the nefarious, cynical, true reason underlying this this intervention. It's important, and we try to do this in the article, to note that the Higher Education Act could have taken different swipes at the problem of higher ed affordability. Um, it included a, a grant program that at the time was was pretty generous, and it got more generous um, into the 70s, right, to the point that it was covering most of the cost um, of attending a public four-year college or university. It's, it's only since the 80s that the, the share covered by what was initially called these basic uh, education opportunity grants um, has declined, right, as, as tuition has gone up and the grant amounts haven't just haven't kept pace. So all of this suggests a general approach to dealing with poverty um, and higher education access. What lawmakers did not focus on, and we can speculate as to why, um, is that poverty is different along lines of race. And the Higher Education Act doesn't doesn't take that into account. That's that's not what they were focused on. Um, even though, if you look at the increases in the numbers of students going to college, um, first the Higher Education Act has been a spectacular success, right? Millions and millions more students pursuing higher education um, than uh, uh, than were previously. But at the same time, more and more of them are now saddled with debt. And disproportionately, it's black and brown students who are saddled with debt because that's that's the condition before, right? That was their condition before they pursued higher ed. Dahlia, I know you want to add something. I mean, I think it's important to tie both questions together, the first question and this one together, to, to note, just to say explicitly um, that, you know, the Higher Education Act, like many of our laws, in fact, most of them probably purports to be a colorblind law, right? It's just whoever wants to attend school, they need to fill out the FAFSA essentially, and then they can get these loans. That's where we are today that, you know, they used to be means tested in a sense. But 
Um, but uh, it, it purports to do that. But especially when the vehicle is debt um, and what you're doing is saying now you have access to this debt, uh, that is not going to be as Jonathan started. Like not everyone needs to take on debt in order to attend, um, you know, a, a post-secondary school. Um, so that's already a selection. And then that debt is going to be more onerous for some groups than others because of the just astronomical wealth gap that we have in this country between particularly black and white people. And then you have a racialized, a, a, a racist uh, labor market. And so then the idea here is that you're taking on this debt in order to go on and, you know, have a great job and, and improve, uh, you know, sort of your lifestyle relative to your family. And that is correct, or apparently it's changing now too, but it, it's only ever been correct on average. It is not correct to say that that's what's likely to happen to the average, say, Black person. Um, that's not actually, uh, so just, just saying on average, we're really, just because of the numbers, we're really talking about for a white person, um, there's that improvement and, uh, you know, for the average uh, white person. So uh, it's it's a apparently colorblind law, but it is, it, it is certainly uh, not having that effect unsurprisingly, given the context. I just wanted to add that, you know, there are virtues of debt to lawmakers, right? So so the, initially the idea or the setup of the program was um, financial institutions would make the loans and the federal government would guarantee them. It's a little more complicated than that because there's state level entities involved in all that. But, but it means that the government doesn't have to come up with all that grant money. So it, it's an appealing tool, but it has precisely the regressive effects that Dalia just articulated, right? That, that it's only the people who need to borrow who need to borrow. And a lot of those people who need to borrow, black and brown people, um, are going to earn lower wages. So repayment is more difficult and they come in with less wealth. So they need to borrow larger amounts. And so it sounds like the water that we were already swimming in had these racial inequities embedded within them. The forms of racial discrimination in the labor market, the wealth gap, which has its roots way back in history, right? And the HEA had this intention of leveling the playing field or providing opportunity was the language that you cited. And yet this quote unquote colorblind approach ends up exacerbating some of that inequity that was already there. Yes. And so I guess I'm, I wanted to follow up, Jonathan, you said, um, that it was it's hard to identify um, sort of those nefarious elements underneath the HEA. And can I ask you to expand on that a little? You speak in the article a few times that these weren't the intentions, that the where we are today is not the intention of the authors of the HEA, that Congress wanted, in fact, to increase opportunity. To what extent does that intention matter at this point? And what can we learn from those good intentions? So, I mean, I'm tempted to answer not in the slightest, right? Like, who cares what their intentions were? Um, because now we have this structure uh, that is simultaneously putting higher education within reach, but imposing these costs in disparate fashion on the people who we intended to benefit by setting it up in the first place. So, so I don't, at one level, I don't know that the, the intentions matter at all, but I do think, to the second part of your question, what we can learn from it, I think there's a sense of possibility 
in the language around the Higher Education Act, there is uh, the conviction that the problem of equity and access to education at every level is something that we can solve. And that too often does not seem to be playing a role in our national debates over student debt. Student debt is just one tool. There are other tools that we could use. Um, and I'll, I'll, save, I'll save the other point I want to make later, but, but there's a moral com- component to our discussions about debt that I, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to in a few moments. And I think, I think that undermines the ability to step back and think about what do we want to do when we have the possibility of the federal government intervening to make higher education more access? Like if we start with that question, what do we get? I, I like that answer. I'll just say it. I think I'm, you know, total agreement, just slightly differently. Um, you know, their intentions, their stated intentions were honorable. I don't know what their real intentions were, right? Like, and we, we do say in the article that, that was those were appear to be their intentions. That's what they said on the congressional record. So let's take them at their word, expanding access, um, you know, so that everyone who wants to uh, pursue higher education can and that we encourage it because we want more people to do that because that is a public good. Um, and so we should uh, expend, we, the government, should expend resources to encourage this and to facilitate it. Those are great intentions. So they tried these interventions, um, the debt, the tax, to a, a much lesser extent, uh, the, the Pell Grant equivalent. They worked to expand some access, uh, not necessarily the completion type of access that we would like, so not as fully as possible. And they harmed many people quite dramatically at the same time. So I would say overall, not the greatest intervention. There are other ways we could do this. And at this point in time, what we can learn from it is, okay, that was not the best way to do this. So now we need to try something different. So in the larger conversation, I'm talking about student debt. This is why, you know, we, I mean, the conversation often focuses on the cancellation argument, which we should definitely have. But the larger, bigger picture is this was a mistake. Focusing on debt, expanding the debt program in this way, requiring essentially everyone who really needs um, the debt, who really needs, you know, somebody to help them to afford higher education, to take uh, that on as a debt was a policy failure. So we need to recognize that and fix it, which means fixing it for the people who we have failed, all of the people we harmed, and fixing it for the future um, so that we don't just keep repeating the same mistake over and over again. So it sounds like when we talk about intention, the HEA set forth this aspirational, philosophical, moral goal of access and education is a public good. And what you're arguing is that the ways, the policies that it implemented to, to fulfill that aspiration were a failure. N- not necessarily a failure, but, but counterproductive, mm. right? In, in the sense that, so debt does mean people can, people can borrow and go to college, uh, colleges that they previously could not have afforded to go to. But there's a penalty, that's attached because there's this obligation to, to repay that can be devastating. Right. And especially if students fail to complete, which we haven't, we haven't talked about yet. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that penalty. Let's talk about the ways in which um, the harms that you're sort of alluding to, but let's really dig into those um, as they, you know, cause you laid out in your article, numerous shifts since 1970 
that contributed to the crisis that we're seeing today, including rising tuition, including rising dependence on these loans in order to access education, including wage stagnation and the rise of for-profit colleges, um, which is significant. So can you speak to what are the effects of all of these trends on students and Black and Latinx students in particular? So the effects are, as one would expect, um, in the sense that these are um, populations that have lower wealth, uh, I mean, dramatically, dramatically lower wealth. And in fact, you know, let's just say some numbers, I mean, the, the wealth numbers um, are, you know, quite dramatic. So for example, um, you know, the median wealth in the country was $81,000 in 2013, but the white median wealth was one and a half times that. Um, and the black median wealth was one eighth of that, $11,000. Uh, so, and this is, you know, this obscures a ton of diversity, you know, among those groups and groups that aren't uh, typically named, like uh, typically separated, like Asian or uh, Native people, because we don't have enough numbers, um, you know, for them. So it obscures a lot of uh, diversity in that sense. So what ends up happening is that uh, all of these things affect uh, the, the groups you would expect disproportionately. They end up going, uh, you know, Black and Latino students are um, heavily overrepresented in uh, for-profit schools. They are also heavily overrepresented in the no graduation, you know, leaves without a diploma category, um, in the default category, in basically every category that is negative, they're overrepresented relative to their, um, you know, uh, percentage of the population. So in, in the article, we talk about this concept of, of predatory inclusion, which is not, we didn't come up with it, but it's a, it's a useful, um, I guess, construct to use, especially in the context of student debt, which is inclusive, right, in that it makes higher education affordable for people who previously might not have been able to afford it. But it's also predatory because the tool makes that education available on terms that reduce its value. Can you illustrate that for us, Uh, maybe using either the for-profit, the example of for-profit schools, I think is a really compelling and sort of straightforward one. So we know that the for-profit sector disproportionately targets particular populations, right? We know that Black people are are overrepresented in the population of students who attend for-profit schools. Latinx students, I think, are also disproportionately um, overrepresented in the populations that attend for-profit schools. And we know that default rates are higher and completion rates are lower for students who attend for-profit schools. So they're obtaining something, the value of which is hotly debated, and I think it, it can can vary from program to program, but the aggregate statistics with respect to for-profits are pretty devastating. Um, that means that the, the students who are pursuing higher education that via that path, too many of them are suffering the consequences of debt at the back end without a degree that accords them the financial benefit that would make it easier to manage that debt. Okay, I want to jump in with just some numbers on the for-profit thing. So students at for-profit institutions who are overwhelmingly Black and Latino because these institutions spend a lot of their revenue on advertisements to these groups and, and you know, locations, uh, you know, their, their physical locations are literally uh, created to um, uh, 
get a larger share of, of people from these groups. So people who attend those institutions uh, pay more for their education uh, in that it costs more, uh, you know, than than uh, community colleges for, you know, as, as an analogy. They're more likely to borrow and they borrow larger amounts of those attending a nonprofit or a public uh, school. And uh, so, for example, an associate's degree, a two-year degree, usually two-year degree uh, recipient at a for-profit school will borrow almost the same amount um, than a bachelor's degree, typically a four-year degree recipient at a four uh, at, a, at a public uh, university. Even though the number of courses required, you know, is typically double for um, a four-year a bachelor's degree. And despite uh, paying more tuition, taking out more debt to afford it, they don't. Uh, these students at for-profit institutions don't experience better educational or labor uh, markets. And one, I mean, I, I'm not an education person, Jonathan. So, like, I didn't really know uh, the the fact that our, you know, percentage, our graduation completion rates um, in general are pretty abysmal. So um, the best uh, four-year, um, uh, so, sorry, six-year completion rate for a four-year degree or what, what we, you know, a, a bachelor's degree, um, it's 65% of uh, students uh, graduate with a, you know, bachelor's degree within six years. That's at private nonprofit colleges. The number for for-profit colleges is 22%. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's really, I mean, they're both, they're both bad. <laughs> they're both bad numbers in that six years, um, you know, for completion is pretty bad. And some are even worse. So like University of Phoenix and 2019 reports, you know, 17% graduation rates within six years. So they, you know, when you don't graduate, you have the worst of all worlds. You've got the debt, um, sometimes for many years, and then, and you have no, and, and uh, you probably haven't worked or haven't worked as much as you could have, um, given that you've been studying, and then you don't have anything to show for it. So, you know, those are, those are the students who then can, tend to have, um, you know, the higher default rates. Um, and so overall, since you have such low completion rates at the, in the for-profit category, then um, it's unsurprising, you know, given the people who are in these groups, who are going to these schools, um, who, who don't complete, it's unsurprising that um, they're going to have such dramatic uh, differences in terms of their completion. Which illustrates your point about predatory inclusion, this idea that you can, att- you can access your education, but there's, you're going to spend more, you're going to be targeted particularly for schools where you're going to spend more and are less likely to graduate and reap the benefits of said education. I'm wondering how did these trends increased over the past many decades, but of course, 2008 was very significant. We've had, we faced the great recession and a sort of shift in the conversation about student loans. What was that shift? How did the great recession impact both the crisis and the conversation about the crisis? So we know that student debt already has an effect on borrowers, numerous of myriad effects on borrowers, right? So the income shock of the Great Recession for students who graduated around that period meant that they uh, put off buying homes, put off having children, put off major major financial investments, um, things like that. So it 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 can set student borrowers back. And again, disproportionately, it's going to set back those students who enter with less wealth, those students who confront labor markets that are going to pay them lower wages, right? So disproportionately, it's going to affect, again, your black and brown students. So it's it's not that surprising that, once again, we have a general phenomenon, but it's going to have a disparate impact. 
on differently situated borrowers. So let's fast forward to today. You lay out numerous pathways for addressing the student debt crisis through the lens of civil rights, saying that access to education is a civil right. And first, you make an important distinction between student debt and other forms of debt, like mortgage loans, namely that students who take out the same student loans face the same terms, unlike other loans like mortgage loans, but that students of color face a completely different socioeconomic context and the ongoing racial discrimination that you named, sort of that water, that, that water of racial uh, inequity and discrimination that we talked about earlier. And you named that a proper remedy for this harm would be specifically targeted to redress past and ongoing wrongs incurred because of racism. So you published this article before the COVID-19 pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. How have these events influenced the conversation on the disparate impacts of student debt on people of color, as well as their potential remedies? I have been pleasantly surprised about the public conversation. And maybe it actually did begin... um, you know, with the Occupy uh, movement during the Great Recession. Uh, this conversation of turning back the tide on or, or going back to first principles of like, you know, not just assuming uh, because a person has debt, uh, there's something, you know, they made that choice, there's something wrong with them and looking beyond that individual to the larger uh, picture of this is actually a, a policy choice that numerous governmental administrations and, and you know, Congresses, et cetera, presidents have made and it is not a policy choice that we necessarily need to live with. And it is also not one that is in the, it's one that, that has whatever, as we talked about earlier, the intentions were, it is, it has not had a good result. And so I think that the, um, just all of the events, all of, you know, and, and, you know, I would even say the climate crisis, like just all of these things that are going on and um, are, uh, leading many people to say these things out loud um, in a way that I think I wouldn't have thought possible in 2018. And that's that's a positive. That's a huge positive, uh, regardless of, you know, being sometimes at least I, I, me being sometimes frustrated about how far we've actually gotten when you get politicians to even say some of these things out loud, but yet don't not to do anything about it. But separate from that question, when you started with the whole, like, you know, redressing the harms, I don't know if you want to talk about, because we do mention the article about, you know, reparations and how this is a larger, there's sort of a larger conversation here. We don't necessarily have to talk about it. I just wanted to mention it. Well, let me ask you a follow-up to to what you just said. So there's also a larger conversation about reparations that has arisen also out of this movement for racial justice. It, It was existing before, but it's really reached prominence in the last couple of years. And you name that need uh, for reparations. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that I've taken out of the sort of all of these movements, the debt collective, the uh, Occupy, all the um, uh, movement of Black Lives, all of it has been that we should be bold and we should think about how do we get, you know, what kind of society do we really want to live in and um, how do we get there? And reparations, as I think we say in the article, is, you know, probably the bare minimum of fixing the original sin, the original wrong of slavery in this country. It does not fix the student loan problem. Um, it fixes, or at least it, it ameliorates. It doesn't even matter actually to me if it fixes quote unquote, uh, you know, problems. It is like, you know, you, you did a wrong thing. You need to attempt to repair it. Um, so it is a larger conversation that, and just specifically 
policies that specifically would target the effects of the original wrong um, is what we should be doing. Uh, for various reasons we described in the article, legal reasons, uh, you know, decisions of the Supreme Court, that is appears to be um, not an easy path to take. So let's go into some of the other solutions that you that you outline. And you really take two approaches in the article. Um, first, laying out an argument um, for a bold shift, and you said boldness, right? You really highlight that boldness in the government's approach to higher education and investment in higher education. And then you lay out some specific reforms to current practices. So can you, in brief, sort of outline some of these solutions for us in both of those categories? We don't go into a lot of, of specifics about how this would work, because it could be incredibly complicated and and you know, a legislative process would lead to all kinds of negotiations that we can't possibly anticipate. But what we describe is the possibility of, of a dramatically expanded federal funding role with respect to higher education, which could take the form of, of money to states or money directly to public colleges and universities. And, and even that, right, is a potentially uh, controversial move. One thing that's important to recognize about loans is they let the student decide what school they want to go to and it can be public or private, nonprofit or for-profit. Um, and, and what we're talking about would be directing funds to public colleges and universities, the schools that are, you know, I think nearly three quarters of students actually enroll at. Um, so the idea of that would be to reduce tuition costs to zero, for students, because we really we haven't really talked about this it, it, because we face two problems. Right. One is this vast pool, the one point six, one point seven trillion dollar figure that gets thrown around all the time. But the other is the ongoing funding challenge. Right. So even if there's some degree of cancellation that I'm sure we're, we're getting to, um, that doesn't fix the system that depends on the availability of federal student loans. So so it's really two steps in the process that we would want to see. One is um, cancellation of, of this existing pool of debt because it was a policy mistake, as Dali articulated, and then um, a fix so that there's not just a new pool of debt that starts growing. You know, it's like hitting the reset button. That doesn't solve it. So let's talk about cancellation because that debt cancellation, that's one of the biggest national conversations right now. We're waiting for Biden to make a decision about that. And I guess what you're what you're saying is that it's necessary, it's a necessary fix based on the mistakes of the past to cancel this debt completely. And then one of the arguments that often goes is, well, what next? So can you speak a little bit to what are some of the major points of resistance to debt cancellation? Uh, and then also a little bit to that what next question. But funnily enough, one of the major points of resistance is that there isn't, you know, there isn't an immediate what what's next. Because one of the, the sort of beauties of the, the moment that we find ourselves in is that we and many people think that the president has the power to cancel a lot, if not all, um, of student loan debt. Uh, or at least, yeah, a lot, if not all, of the student loan debt. So the, the pre- without going to Congress, you know, and Congress cannot seem to do very much um, on any topic, even important ones, uh, the president can do this. So, they, it, so the reset button thing, the president can do unilaterally today. 
So that's one reason to sort of push for, at the very least, let's fix that, right? Then it would take all of Congress to take many steps to fix the other problem, uh, the ongoing problem. Uh, and that is something that we should definitely do. Um, but that is something that requires a lot more people. It's a lot more complicated. Uh, so, you know, there's no reason if we think that this was a mistake, like dragging it on doesn't, you know, it, it just, um, there's no reason to do it if you don't have to. Uh, so that's one of the arguments, though, is that, you know, fixing it, if, if Biden erases $50,000, um, $75,000, whatever, from, uh, you know, the balance books of, of all these uh, people, and all of a sudden, a lot of people, a lot of the 44 million become not student loan borrowers at all, like they don't have a debt anymore, then, you know, people are going to take on, like you literally hear this, we're going to take on more student loan debt, so that they can, you know, because they think they're going to get it erased too in the future, to which I say, yes, they should. And yet, you know, it's a rational thing to do uh, because this should not be our system of funding. And so it's very myopic to say a lot of the objections to, to cancellation are, you know, kind of like myopic and rude <laughs> in that they essentially are like, oh, you know, the world has always been like this. And so it will always be like this, which is not at all, you know, right? Like, so, so it has to be this way. There will be also this amount of debt we're going to drive up. And then we will, I guess, erase it. If we erase it once, we will erase it again. But maybe we should just like not get into the cycle again. And maybe cancellation will be the thing that kicks us into not, you know, at least one of the arguments against the cycle. And the other uh, root argument is the, well, what about the people who already paid off their debt? Doesn't everybody have to deserve or require? Shouldn't we require everyone to suffer? Um, which is just rude. Like, I mean, no, <laughs> just because other people suffered, we made a mistake, we should try to fix it. If, if you know, if there are ways to help those people too, that who already paid off and who are in trouble for some reason, like that's a different argument rather than saying like they suffered and so the other people should suffer as well. Yeah, the, th- the three objections that, that I think I hear the most are just cost. Um the moral hazard problem that Dalia just described, right? The idea that once debt is canceled, people will go out and, and borrow more and get more education. And the, the, the problem with that argument is that it's suggesting it's more than they should, but the justification for whatever the right amount of education that people should finance, that's always fuzzy, right? And, and the, the one thing people fall back on is, well, how much money are people going to make if they pursue a particular course of study in order to be able to pay off their loans. And I'm not sure that should dictate what young people or any age people, right, student borrowers do. And the third one is the argument that it's regressive, right? This is, we were talking about this just the other day. Um, the, the idea that it's regressive saying people who have larger balances, student loan balances, um, are more likely to be people who have pursued advanced higher ed, right? If, if medical school, law school, what graduate programs, things like that, um, who are, and they're going to tend to earn more money uh, and therefore we shouldn't be subsidizing them, right? They're going to, it's like the fear of the free rider. And um, the, the problem with that is another one that Dali already articulated, not in this context, which is even if that's true in the aggregate, it's certainly not true with respect to every each and every borrower, right? There are borrowers with large dollar balances who are really, really struggling. There are borrowers with large dollar balances who are associates at, you know, law firms making huge salaries. Um, The fact that student loan cancellation would benefit both is not a reason not to do it, 
There's also, I just, um, I don't have it right in front of me, so like we can look more if, uh, anyway, th there's a few things um, about this argument of uh, regressivity. One is that it's based on, um, assume, you know, uh, uh, comparing incomes or thinking about people's incomes. Um, and incomes are volatile and um, they also don't really give you, you would not really say that someone is rich because they have a high income or that, I mean, literally the, you know, rich is about wealth. Like what is their relative wealth? And saying that someone just graduated from, you know, say like a black student who comes from a, you know, a lower middle class family, goes to law school, pays a lot of money, gets a big law job, they're going to make a lot of money. That is not the same. Uh, th that person is not in the same situation as someone who came from an upper middle class uh, school, even if they borrowed the same amounts. Um, they're, you know, the, the sort of, if there is a um, uh, an unemployment period or a health problem or anything, those are those issues are going to affect those two individuals very differently. So we can't look at, at income. We should be looking at wealth. And when we look at wealth, um, we see that it's this a cancellation is not regressive at all. In fact, it's progressive. It disproportionately affects the lowest wealth individuals uh, who borrowed uh, because it is the lowest wealth individuals who um, had to borrow. And it uh, and that the more cancellation we do and um, uh, Charlie Eaton and uh, Fred Wary, Laura Hamilton, and I forgot the fourth person uh, did a report on this, which I think is, you know, really what we should be citing when we talk about this stuff is uh, the, you know, 10,000 is, is progressive. 50,000 is dramatically more progressive and here progressive. I mean, affecting uh, the groups that have the lowest wealth and in, and also uh, in turn also affecting black and Latinx uh, borrowers more, um, you know, both of those things. And 75,000 uh, is even, even more <laughs> progressive. Of course, if you wipe it all out, everyone is, uh, you know, has no student loan debt, but because of the composition of people who have student loan debt, that itself is also progressive when we look at wealth. Hmm. So as we move towards conclusion, um, it's worth naming that your proposed solutions sort of toe this line in some ways uh, between what is and what should or what could be um, between that desperate and moral need for boldness in the face of, in the face of decades of inequity, as well as the need for the for incremental reforms in the face of a really complex and layered and sort of embedded system. Um, so, in brief, before our final question, can you speak to the seeming tension, and how does that tension inform this discourse, both on student debt but also on racial justice in general? I think, in the context of cancellation. Um, especially right now where the, there are different dollar amounts being thrown around, right? I, I think I just read a, another newspaper art, article this morning that uh, cited the $10,000 cancellation figure with an income cap of 125000 I can't remember which, which newspaper I was reading that in. One of the fears I have is if that step or something like that is taken that momentum for something broader is destroyed. Um, and the possibilities um, are really exciting, right? I mean, also in the newspaper, uh, with, within the past few weeks, we had the announcement from New Mexico about eliminating tuition at its public universities, period. So that's going to be a great experiment to watch, right? To see whether, you know, does the sky fall if you make it free? Do too many people go to college? I mean, it, 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 I'm 
you know, makes me smile even to mention it, but, but are too many people going to pursue higher education um, if the cost um, is eliminated? And, and I hope that it will still be possible to have a conversation um, about going beyond, right, eliminating a swath of the, this current pool of student debt, um, maybe beyond raising Pell Grant amounts, although those are hugely important right? And will benefit people in concrete terms. Um, but it's, it's the structure that uh, we really wanted to draw attention to in the, in the article. Writing this article, which we did over 2019 in particular, and I mean, and at the time that we did so, I have to say radicalized me uh, in terms of this tension. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like in terms of this tension about you know, being bold or being like, you know, we're academics. So it is not the case that you generally say academics are like bold and, and you know, you know, propose things that are out there, etc. Like we generally, it's, you know, incremental uh, possible uh, things that, that could really occur. And to me, you know, the, the, the tension is 100% there. I don't know the answer other than, um, you know, one can imagine a world in which we get to good places through incremental reform. But I think we, that is not the world we have lived in. That is not the world, that is not what has happened in this world. Um, and, and when you begin at only advocating for incremental reforms, then you're never going to get more than that because no one goes from like, Hey, let's do this tiny thing to like, now let's do something very dramatic. So I think it's in, like, even as an academic, I think it's important to, to try to, propose a thing that would have the possibility of actually like making major change, understanding that that is not what may happen. Um, but that first we need to view the world or, or envision the world in which that major change occurs and, and see what that might be like. Well, on that aspirational note, let's close out with a final question. Looking ahead, you know, we're waiting for president Biden's announcement. We're on the cusp of a possible recession and we are, uh, almost to our midterm elections. We're heading in that direction. What can we learn from the past? And what is your hope for the future? I hope we think big. I really hope we think big. And the reason, the reason I say that is, um, so the National Defense Education Act, which we didn't, we didn't talk about much, but it, the, before the Higher Education Act, there was the National Defense Education Act. And it was passed after um, the then Soviet Union launched Sputnik. And it created this panic that we're going to lose the space race and then we're going to lose the Cold War. We're going to lose everything. We need to invest in education so that we can win in all these different dimensions. And so there's this, this pretty sizable investment in making higher education accessible out of concern over this global competition. And today I see us facing at least four Tremendous challenges, right? So there's there's a medical public health crisis that looks like it's going to be ongoing. Uh, there's global warming. There's military threats, a land war in Europe. Who would have thought? Um, and then increasingly, as, as you noted, right, we recognize the legacy of racial inequality in the country and we have to grapple um, with how to address it. So that seems to me to suggest we need to be investing an awful lot more than we have already, because we're going to need some really smart people to have really well-educated smart people um, to get us through all of these. 
I think, I don't know that I could say it any better. Um, so I, I can, you know, thinking about these issues that um, can be very depressing, especially now. Um, I'm glad that we're having the conversation that there may be cancellation soon. Uh, I had hoped we'd have that conversation two years ago. Uh, I don't, you know, it's unclear why it's taken this long, but hey, we're here. This is what we're at. So, um, so what is my hope from the future, for the future? Um, I think we need to, and I hope, and I had, you know, I would have said this two years ago, but that we need to take bold action that actually attempts to solve the real problems that we have. It won't solve all the problems. It may create new problems. That's just the nature of change. Um, but incremental or um, defense kind of change is not going to get us anywhere good. So in my hope for the future on this topic and actually many others that, uh, you know, come control like all sorts of other topics is that we actually, uh, you know, those who are currently in charge of government, of our government actually commit to doing something different uh, that is attempting to remedy the problems. Well, thank you both for laying out the argument for this kind of bold change. Uh, and also thank you for your time, uh, Professor Jonathan Glader and Professor Dalia Jimenez. Thank you uh, on behalf of all the audiences of Then and Now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.